I was actually supposed to do children's church today, and then uh, Ben wanted to swap with me for, and so we did. I told Justin that's what happens when he leaves out of town. He just never knows what's going to go down around here. So, anyways, I heard a story, and I'm going to put this back here while I tell you my story. I heard, I heard a story of two guys that were walking down a, a country lane. While I'm telling the story, you can turn to Luke chapter 22, by the way. Um, I heard the story about these two guys that were walking down a country lane, and <clears throat> in the distance they saw what they thought was just a, just a cow in the road, and as they got a lot closer, they found that it was like an angry bull. And uh, being country guys, they didn't really think much of it. They just kept walking, but then they found out that the, the bull was really, really, really angry. And uh, when the bull made contact with them, he took off at them. So they, of course, they turned around and did what any sensible person would do and ran, you know. That's what I did when I was a kid and cows came at us. I would go the opposite direction of the cows. And uh, so as they were running, this bull was gaining speed on them. And one guy looked at him and said, John, you need to pray. We've got a problem. And John told his friend, he goes, I don't pray. I've never prayed in public. I don't know what to say. He goes, man, I don't care what you say. Just pray something. And they're running down the road. He's like, all right, fine. I'll pray what my dad used to pray before dinner. He said, dear Lord, truly make us thankful for what we're about to receive. Amen. <laughs> and <laughs> I read that story a while back, and I was like, that feels like 2020, you know. Make us thankful for what we're about to receive. But it also made me think of what was going on and uh, Luke chapter number 22, and that's where we want to focus um, the beginning of the message, and then we'll move into some other portions of Scripture. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter number 2. Not all those in its entirety, uh, but we're going to be kind of taking a theme here that Jesus brings up and a moment in which you would think a person is not or should not be thankful. Let's just be honest. In Luke chapter 22, this was before it was finished. Jesus, knowing that things would be finished by the cross, says what he says. Uh, and he sits down to eat what we call the Lord's Supper, which we will be observing next week. We call it communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, whatever you want to call it. And in uh, verse number 14, I want to read down through this. And if you want to jump over with me at these different portions of Scripture, that would be great. It would probably give you a better idea of what we're shooting at as we look at the Scripture together. And I'm reading the New King James Version, if that helps you, if you need to switch that on your Bible app, if you want to do that. If you're just one of those old school people that's got your Bible in front of you, you could just be like, yeah, that's really good. It doesn't matter. I'm with it, though. So uh, Luke chapter 22, verse number 14, the Bible says here, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, verse 17 and 18 is going to be our focus. Then he took the cup, and notice this. It says that he gave thanks. All right. He gave thanks and said, take, eat this is, uh, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup of uh, supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Uh, and he says, and he goes on and he talks about Judas there. And I don't want to get too far into that because I'll probably get sidetracked. What struck me as we come into the Thanksgiving season is this, is how just like these two guys walking down a country lane and inadvertently thanking God for something that was about to be incredibly painful on accident, uh, we see Jesus here purposely giving thanks for something that was going to be very painful him in the, for him in the very near future. 
Uh, he's thanking God for a difficulty that is yet to even come to pass. Uh, what's so interesting about this is, is that, you know, we, if we were, just think about the disciples. That's how I try to interpret a lot of what's going on in the Gospels uh, from their perspective because what they understood was very limited. Yes, they knew the Old Covenant Scripture, uh, but the details of what were going to happen to Jesus in, in, a very, in a very fine way, they weren't laid out to them. Yes, he told them that he was going to be taken, he was going to be crucified, but they, I don't think it really set in for them what that actually meant. Now, I don't know about you, but it would be very difficult for me to sit back and just say, God, thank you that I'm about to go through this horrendous torture. Th knowing what was going to happen. Often we go through things unknowingly, and then when we learn the lesson on the other side of them, we look back and say thank you, right? Uh, we, maturity teaches us that. I'm still working on that aspect of it. Uh, but we go through different difficulties in life, and we're able to look back, gain the lesson, and say, God, thank you. Uh, for letting that happen to me. Now I understand what was going to go on. Jesus, being the Son of God, knew the pain that was coming, and yet he still thanked the Father. You know, and it's very easy. When I was, when I was pastoring full-time, it was always, uh, when it came to, like, the most difficult sermons for me to kind of put together were ones for Thanksgiving and Christmas for some reason. you think those would be really super easy, uh, but for some reason I struggled with them for whatever reason. Uh, I really struggle with Thanksgiving because, and this is why, it is so easy for anybody to stand up in front of a group of people and talk for 45 minutes why you aren't very grateful. You know what I mean? It's super easy. I mean, you know you've heard them. You know you've been to church for the Thanksgiving sermon or whatever the case may be, and uh, for, you know, 20, 25, three and a half hours, I don't know, depends on where you're at, you're berated for how ungrateful that you may have been in some, like, kind of backhanded way, you know what I mean? But what I want us to focus on, rather than maybe necessarily our gratitude, I want us to see why it was, and just take into consideration why it is, is Jesus was thankful for what he was about to go through. And I want us to kind of look at different sections of the New Testament as we get over into the writings of Paul as to why there could be thankfulness around the suffering uh, that Jesus went through. So the first thing I want us uh, to look at, if you want to turn over to Romans chapter number 5. Turn over there with me real quick. Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to, like I said, look at a couple of different portions of Scripture this morning. Before we get into this, I do want to pray. I, I feel the need to pray right now. I know that might be strange at church, but we're just going to do it anyway. You know, just bear with me. So let's pray together, all right? Father, thanks for your love. Thank you for... Um, Thank you that you, you saw the cross, and of course, as the scripture says, you despised the shame. You went through it, and now you're sat, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we're thankful that you did not step away uh, from the cross, but you embraced the cross. You even gave thanks for what you were going to go through to provide this gospel that we now appreciate uh, so much, the gospel that uh, forgives us, that changes us, that provides for us a future uh, that we never even considered. And so this morning we pray as we look at Scripture uh, that you show us just the extent of what it meant that you were thankful for what you provided for us. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so over in Romans chapter number 5, I love the book of Romans. I've often said if I had to be trapped on a desert island and only had one book of the Bible to read, it would definitely be the book of Romans, probably also the book of Hebrews, 
we might as well just go ahead and slide in Ephesians. I know that's three, but it's in the Bible, so it counts, all right? Uh, the book of Romans, if you want to know the ins and the outs of salvation, if you want to know what the ins and the outs of the Christian life are, if you want to know everything that God put together for us wrapped up in the person of Jesus, the book of Romans does that for us. Uh, it starts from the depravity of man, moves into the, the personhood of Christ, moves over into his death and resurrection, shows us what it means to be crucified and risen again with Jesus. No other book in the Bible goes into such extent. And then here in Romans chapter 5, when we consider this idea of when Jesus looked at the cross and he was thankful, uh, one of the things I want us to consider is this, is that he was thankful that he knew that the gospel was going to be free. It was going to be free. In Romans chapter number 5, if you want to look with me in verse number 15, Paul is extrapolating on this idea of the freeness of the gospel. And he says, just very plainly, he says, but the free gift, and I love this opening phrase right here, this is so great. He says, the free gift is not like the offense. Now, I know that I can be pretty particular about words, and if you join us at all on Wednesday nights. I can get hung up on just little phrases sometimes. This is one of those phrases that hangs me up because often I think, uh, or I may surmise, or maybe I'm assuming a little bit here, we look at what the gospel has provided for us in like a one-for-one -one nature from what we had in sin. We're like, all right, well, we had sin, so God met the need right there with the gospel. But that's not what the scripture teaches us because the, uh, the gift is not like the offense, he goes on and he explains that because he says, For if by one man's offense many died, now here's a good this, these two words are very important. He says, Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now, this is an interesting phrase for me because uh, you hear a lot of negative talk about this idea of hyper grace. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before, hyper grace? I know I hear it and I'm just, I'll, I'll just roll my eyes, you know. It's so ironic that that phrase is taken and it's used in a negative context that even in this verse, verse number 15, the word abound, if you look at it in the Greek, it's where we get our English word hyper from. So what is so ironic about it is, is that there, there's this idea about a negativity of hyper grace when literally what the Bible is talking about right here is a super abundant hyper grace. It is a grace whereas we think to ourselves, oh, that meets the need that we have. And see, often we talk about the gospel in terms of meeting our need. But the gospel did not meet our need. The gospel superseded our needs. And that's very important to take into consideration because the offense is not like the free gift. It wasn't a tit-for-tat type of a thing. It wasn't like, here's one, here's one. It was like, you, here's one, here's the problem, here's the answer. And so he goes on and he says in verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came from the one who sinned. It's not, he didn't come, it doesn't even come the same way. Adam earned what he got, didn't he? God came to him and he said, don't eat of the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And he did so. And so he got the just reward of what he did. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. You get the reward of what someone else did. You see, that's why when Jesus sat there with the 12 disciples, he could say, I thank you, Father, for this cup. I thank you, Father, for what this bread is. Because he knew that it wasn't just like he was going to show up and replace one thing with something else. He was going to supersede sin with what he was going to provide via the gospel. In verse 16, it 
says, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted of condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive, and here's that phrase again, abundance. See that? Receive abundance of grace. That is the same word, hypor, or something like that. I can't say it in Greek. I just went to college to make you think I could say it in Greek. And so it's the same word where we get hyper. He says, receive the hyperness or the, uh, the hyper grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through life in one Jesus Christ. When I look at this particular portion of Scripture, it's, very, it's marked all up in my Bible, which I'm sure you probably have a number of things highlighted in that as well. One of the things that, we can, that Jesus was looking forward to is the fact that he was going to provide for you not just something you needed, but he was going to meet and exceed your and I's spiritual needs. He was going to take it to uh, what we would call the next level, but to him is just sheer normalcy. <clears throat> God is excessive and super generous in his free gift of grace. You know, there can be too much flesh, can't there? There can be way too, just a little bit too much, right? Uh, there, can be too, there can be a little bit too much Moses, you know. There can be too much Moses. There can be too much licentiousness, but there can never be too much grace. Oftentimes we talk about the freeness of grace in terms that it's got to be like kind of weighed back with something else. Like grace has to have these reins on it that pulls, pulls us back. Because if you give somebody too much grace, they're just going to go nuts, well, now, if we give, if we if we accept and take the grace of the Bible, there's going to not the, the flesh is going to be minimized, the licentiousness automatically reigns itself in because grace and life go hand in hand. And so, I think, as Jesus sat there with his twelve disciples, I think the first thing he was probably thankful for was for the freeness of the gospel that he was about to provide to us. Many times Jesus looked out over the crowds, and even in Matthew chapter number 11, he looked out and he said, all you that labor and are heavy laden, come to me. See, he could see the effects of a, of a, a, a self-righteousness-based system on people around him. He saw it. He, he, now from, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced of this, and this is here says, buddy, not necessarily the Lord, so you just take it for what it's worth. I guess an entire sermon is that technically, but... Uh, more emphasis on this point now. But I think that a lot of the physical ailments that we see people dealing with in a religious context are because of the self-righteousness and the, 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 the legalistic you know, weight that are put on people. Because it increases anxiety. You know, it increases a codependency. It increases pride. Uh, in a lot of other, in a very, in a lot of dark situations of the world, it increases a lot of sin where one person is taking advantage of another person. All of this is wrapped up in a self-imposed religion, and Jesus knows these things, so he steps in, and he goes, "I'm thankful that I'm going through what I'm going through, so you can have what you need and exceed for free, at no cost." I know that I had I preached a sermon like that one years ago when I really began to come into the, the message of grace in its fullness. And I remember preaching this one message on the love. I may have said this. So if I've told you this story before and you've heard it before, blessed are they to hear the story twice and still appreciate it, all right? So I, I remember I preached this entire message on just the love of God. I think I preached out of John three sixteen 
something like that. And the whole message was that God loves you. He, he, he provided for you. That was it. That was the gist of the message. And there was a lady visiting the church at the time, and she was from out of town. So she came up to me afterward, and she was very concerned, which is fine. I mean, I may have said something concerning. I know that's hard for me to believe, but I, maybe I did. I don't know. So she came up to me after the message, and she goes, and this is the first words out of her mouth. She said, and it was kind of contradictory because she said, I really enjoyed your message, but you can't tell people that. And I was like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) I was like, well, wait, what do you mean? She's like, well, you can't tell people that God just loves them like that or they're just going to do whatever they want. You know what? The sermon, it was a home, that was a home run sermon in my opinion. You know why? Because she got the point. She got what was being implied. Because what the Bible is not eating, the Bible doesn't imply it. The Bible says it directly. But what, the way that I said it, she had to read the other side of the coin. And what she was telling me is, is the way that I see love, I see love as this license to do whatever you want. So I need something to put a roadblock up in front of me. I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I was, I've never had anybody say anything like that to me before. But I went away from church that day thinking to myself, all right, I said something right if something like that was taken away. There were people that took that away, but you know what? There were other people that walked out and said, I understand the love of God better now. Let's turn over to Ephesians real quick. You flip over there or push the button that gets you there. All right. I have to use these little markers here so I can try to beat you on your cell phone. You know, I have to say, turn to Ephesians. You're like, we're there. Come on, let's get this show on the road. And I'm still like flipping through there. Pages are sticking together. Ephesians chapter 1, look at, if you will, with me, verse number 3. So, I believe Jesus was thankful because he saw the freeness of the gospel. I also think Jesus was thankful uh, for what he was going to go through because of the family-oriented focus of the gospel. All right, now, that's why I, I say this. Number one, it starts with an F like my first point did, so I had to say it that way so it would rhyme. Secondly, we see it in verse number 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, again, is writing here, and he says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Now get here, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And verse 4 is where I grab the, gather this from. He says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Excuse, well, no, it's not. It's the next one. We're going to keep reading. Chose us before him in the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, here it is having predestinated us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ and to himself. You see, when Jesus was facing the cross, he knew that, as the book of Hebrews says, that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. He knew that he was going to assemble unto himself as a father a a spiritual family that he could then turn around and bless. And we're going to look at that here in just a minute. You know, when I think about this, I think about how important family is. You know, and we all say that at Thanksgiving time, right? If you're you're going to put a Facebook post up of your kids and your grandkids and your wife and your spouse, and uh, if Angela doesn't put that on Facebook about me, I'm going to be devastated. And we uh, put these things out on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that you're communicating with the rest of the outside world on, and we say this: I'm thankful for these people, and that's important. We should be thankful for those people. Those are the people that love us the most and drive us the craziest, the easiest. And uh, so we're thankful for both sides of that coin, Nick. Just don't. Whatever you're thinking, stop. I can see it going through your eye right now. (laughs) Danielle just deleted her Facebook post. (laughs) 
Amen. <laughs> and fam- if you think about family, the reason why we're so thankful for them, because that's where, we are, where's where God has designed where to le- learn about identity, who we are. We learn what protection is like, what acceptance is. At least that's what we're supposed to learn. And God has set up the church and in general and as a whole in a family structure with him being the father. Why do you, why is, if you stop and you think about it too, and I, I heard this on a documentary. I don't know how true it is, so hearsay at the documentary, not buddy, all right? I blame it on it. Uh, but there is a he's actually, I believe he's a Catholic priest, and he has a, a ministry in, it's in Los Angeles or Southern California somewhere uh, where he helps these guys, these pri- prisoners that are get, felons that are getting out of jail, and they've, cr- they've committed these, these crimes that are so huge, they have a very difficult time finding jobs. Uh, so what he has done is I believe he has started a bakery, uh, and these guys, these prisoners come in. Have you heard of this? Okay, and he, he gives these guys jobs at bakeries and just revolutionizes their life because he treats them like sons, and he's their father. And he made a very interesting point in this interview that I was watching with him. He said, if you stop and you think about it, really, at the end of the day, the first person that has to choose to accept you or reject you after you're born, you're born, is the father. He's the first one there. When the baby's born, what do they typically do? You know, they say, here, do you want to hold the baby? You know what I mean? And the father at that moment, we, and you all know people that have, before that moment ever came to pass, they said no and they left. And then that child deals with the fact that they've had to grow up without a father in some way. See, the father is the one that chooses the baby. The mother, is, the, the mother has a connection with the child that us as guys, we'll never know. We'll, we'll just never really know what it is. You know what I mean? And having seen babies born, you can have it. All right? I, that's fine. <laughs> I'll work on my connection the other way. You can have your special one. All right? I'm good. I'm too big of a wuss. I can't handle it. It doesn't look like Tylenol can fix that, so I'm out. All right? But in a family scenario, in a family scenario, the father... And isn't it interesting that in these verses, it talks about how God himself, as the father, chooses us, even in these very verses. Jesus saw that. He saw that coming down the pike, as it were. He knew what the cross meant for us on that side of the gospel. God's desire is for you and I to receive all he wants to give us from his fatherhood. Look at verse number six with me, if you would. <clears throat> verse number six, it says, uh, to the praise. I'm sorry, I lost my spot here. There's something wrong with my glasses. They don't work like they used to. I don't know what it is. It's like when I look at the Bible, the words just keep getting smaller and fuzzier. I'm not sure what that is. I think there's something wrong with these words, obviously, because it's not my eyes. All right, so in verse number six, he says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I want to focus in on it, and I know I'm jumping around. I know I could go back up there and I could talk about the predestinated fact of the, and how did God foreknow he forechose, and we could get neck deep and all that, and trust me, I am tempted, uh, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, Courtney. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to continue to move through here, okay? And I want us to consider this idea of what he says here about the acceptance of a father when it says he has made us acceptable in the beloved. The word accepted means special honor or highly favored. Now, before we get in this situation, 
where we make ourselves kind of equal with the gospel because I don't like that mentality sometimes. Sometimes it's kind of like we give this idea that it's like God, that God is just so happy that he has us that he's spending all his time doing things for us uh, because we're so much more special than he is. That's not the case. What the gospel is saying here is this, is that God has taken the value of his deity and he has given that to us. That's what places the value upon us, is the fact that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God within us. We are the temples of God now. Uh, We have been made acceptable by the indwelling Spirit of Christ. You know, when I look at this, now, let me read this quote. Maybe this quote will kind of help clear this up as we, we move into this. My mind is racing like 100 miles an hour now, so you'll have to excuse me. I heard one man say this. I read this quote, and I didn't write down who it was for whatever reason, so you'll just have to Google it. Uh, he says that the most influential human person in your life is you. And he says this is why. He says because that's the person you talk to the most. And whatever you and I have to say about ourselves needs to match what God says about us. You know, I don't know who said it because I didn't write it down. Obviously, I'm taking credit for it. But it's very interesting in this, this, this concept because what is God saying here? God is saying that I've made you acceptable. I've done that. When Jesus was sitting at that table with the 12 disciples and he said, I thank you, God, for this cup and I thank you, God, for uh, this bread because this is my blood, the blood of my new covenant. This is the body that will be broken for you. When he said that, he said it being thankful because he knew that the Father was going to then be, to be able to make those that come to him through Christ acceptable. Now, what are we busy doing? What are we spinning our wheels at every day? And one way or the other, we're either trying to make ourselves acceptable to us or we're trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. I know I do it. I do it all the time. I have a message in my mind that I speak to myself on a regular basis. I'm not careful. Angela tells me about it all the time because she can read my mind. All right? And if she could, trust me, she wouldn't even be here. She would be packed in like somewhere in a cave somewhere hiding from me because this is a disturbing mess up here sometimes. But I have this voice that speaks to me. I have this voice in my mind at times, and it sounds just like Buddy. And it tells me things about Buddy that Buddy knows is true about, well, I'm a schizophrenic and so am I right now. But But that voice tells me things that I feel like are true about myself. Now get this, sometimes that voice says things to me that literally are true about me. Something that's true about my behavior or something that's true about the way that I, I think or something that's true about what I've done in the past, and it's true, and it happened, and it's real, and I can't deny it. So how do I deal with it? Well, I deal with it in verse number 6, that he's made me acceptable. I'm acceptable even when I don't think I'm acceptable. I'm acceptable even when I know that if things were weighed out one for one, good marks and bad marks, I am not acceptable. I'm even acceptable then. They say, well, that sounds like you're saying it doesn't matter what you do. You know what? If it didn't matter what you did, you wouldn't have those conversations in your head, would you? You know what we, you know what we think about what matters, what we do and we don't do? You know what we think about it in terms of? We think about it in these terms. Well, if I sin, then God's going to break my leg. That's what we think of. We think to ourselves, well, if I you know, disobey God, well, then my finances are going to go down the toilet. 
And that may be true, but you know what? Sometimes, and get this, now, this is very important to get. Why do consequences for our sins always have to be physical harm and loss of money? You ever thought about that? Why is that always the case? Do you know that we live, and I'm, again, I don't want to make a definitive statement to the point where you feel like that I'm casting judgment on something you may or may not be dealing with when I make this statement. But do you know that we deal with all kind of emotional neuroses because of the things that we choose to do and then we have to carry the guilt of it? Not every time. Not every time. Other times there are just things I know in my head they misfire and I need, I need that straightened out. You know what I mean? I know in my emotions, sometimes they're not hitting on all, well, I was going to say eight cylinders, but that's a bit ambitious for my emotions. We're just going to go with a two-stroke weed eater mower, okay? (laughs) Sometimes it's just not firing right, you know, and I need that to be corrected. But there are a lot of the times I carry an emotional weight and a mental weight because of something that Buddy did to himself. And you know what? None of you know anything about it. You know? The fact that I, the point that I'm trying to make out here is this, is the message we have in our head isn't the message that we're reading in Scripture all the time. And God has said that I have made you acceptable. You know why? Because he's a father, and that's what fathers do. Fathers have, by the design of Scripture, a father is wanting to create a secure environment for his children so they can grow up in a way that they will be emotionally healthy. That's what he's trying to do, and that's what the Father's doing here. I've made you, and even if you back up, and let's see here, what verse was it? See, now you got me distracted, all right? Look at verse number four. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, but it says it right there, all right? You can't argue that, it just says it. Before the foundation of the world, that Now, notice this, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, let me explain how a legalist reads that verse. God chose you, so you need to behave. All right? You need to be holy and blameless. Well, anytime it's interpreted that way, I want to say, good luck at your blameless roll of the dice. All right? Let me know how that works out for you. Now, let me, let me just put a caveat at and say when I tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying what we do and don't do doesn't matter. What I'm saying is this, that the plan of God before the foundations of the world was to send Jesus Christ for you to then as you come to his cross and enter into his covenant that he makes you holy, separate. He separates you for himself and then he makes you blameless. He takes away any charge against you, right? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Isn't that what the book of Romans says? And what's the implication of that? Nobody. It's God that justifies, Paul said. And why does he do this? He says that he does so in love. You know what I love about that? Yes, Doug. Yes, I see that hand. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Hit me. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it says in John three sixteen that for God so loved the world, you know. So there's that, and you're trying to get me off on a rabbit trail, Doug. I feel I, I see you're doing it. You're you're trying to fish me in. <laughs> no, that you're. I agree with you in this particular instance. 
Right. Well, it's a matter of response. Right. Right. It's a matter of faith at that point. Right. That whosoever would. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's like we're scared to read verses like that, but they, they actually solidify for us where we're at in Christ. What I found interesting along those same lines is how it says it ends in verse number four by saying that he's make us blameless before him in love. Now, this is what I, one of the aspects that I find so interesting about the love of God. And when I use these words, please understand that and I may be getting ahead of myself in my sermon, but I will. Uh, but when I use these words, understand that they can come across like they're cold, calculated words when we connect them to love. But they're really not. Because think of this. God's love was planned. You know, God's love was laid out. God's love was premeditated. Now, I know that might sound scary. But uh, nonetheless, it says he's the lamb slain when? When is he the lamb slain? before the foundations of the world. It's not like God was caught off guard uh, in Eden. He was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And it's not like God is this, this lover of the soul that throws off all these restraints and does th- things outside of his own holy ethos. He relates to us in a love that meets his character. And then that love picks us up and brings us into line with who he is as deity. It's not like God is this ravaged, jilted girlfriend that's running after us hastily not knowing what he's going to do. No, God knew what he was going to do. He did so methodically. He laid it out. He planned it. He executed it. He thought of it beforehand because you're not going to walk up to your wife in the moment that you realize you needed to buy her flowers for her birthday and just pull them out of thin air. You're going to have to make some kind of last-minute run to Walmart Even if you didn't think about it until 10 minutes beforehand, at least you had a plan. People feel the most loved when they know you went out of your way to lay out a plan to demonstrate your love to them. And that is exactly what God did. He laid out a plan from eternity past before anything was even laid out. And when Jesus sat in front of those 12 disciples, he said, I'm thankful for that. Because that is what's going to make, that's, that's going to open the heart up the most to receive the love of God, knowing that He, before we ever did anything good or bad, left or right, Republican or Democrat, any of that stuff, God loved. And He loved so methodically and on purpose and executed it so we could see exactly His heart towards us. I have a whole other point. We're going to run through it real quick because, hey, I spent time typing it, so we're going to get into this, all right? So <laughs> real quick, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish it up here. The third thing I think Jesus was thankful for in that moment is over in Ephesians chapter number 2. And I think I personally feel, as looking at that and just thinking through this, that he was thankful for the future. He was thankful for what was coming for you and I. You see, because in that moment, the disciples were probably like, how could he be thankful for this? What, what's so thankful Remember over in Hebrews, he, he talks about, I guess I should just read it because I can't remember it. I mean, I have the entire Bible memorized, but this one portion is just evading my mind right now. So I apologize for my lack of spirituality. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> and verse 2, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it real quick. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for, now get this, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I personally think that joy was twofold. I think that he looked at the cross knowing that his, the fellowship with the Father was going to be broken in that moment for us. I think he looked forward to that, that relationship being restored, but I also think he looked forward that joy was knowing that our relationship was going to be able to be restored. That's just what I think. Again, my commentary, you can fight me in the comments. All right, so not now, Doug, later. But <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, I want us to see this idea of the future, what Jesus is looking towards. And really to get a good idea of this, and I'm going to try to hurry through here because I, uh, I know that you've probably got something cooking at home and you want to get to it, and you probably stayed up till 3 in the morning playing video games. I get it, so we won't stay too long here. But in verse number 1, it says, And you, now this is speaking to us as believers here, And you, he hath made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which he had loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Now get this, here's the future. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of whose grace? His grace. Not our, not, not our works. We're not going to go into eternity and God pats us on our head about how faithful we were. Eternity is going to be him displaying his grace towards us. It, just, it, 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 it really got to me one day. It finally just rested on my mind. Buddy, why do you think that everything you do is so you can like, you know, pull the, go, like, it's like casino, uh, like heaven's a casino, you know, and I'm doing, I'm, you know, doing, I'm putting the money of good works in the slot of the machine and pulling the arm to see what kind of rewards God's going to pile down on me when I get to heaven so me and Brian can walk around and high five each other about how many Bible verses we memorize. He's going to be like, Brian, here's 30 gold pieces for memorizing Colossians. And Brian's going to scoop them all in and be like, no, 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 Jesus, you keep the gold pieces. Now, you think about what that really is being implied. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? It says in this verse that in the future, the gospel is so that God might put, show us the kindness of his grace. <clears throat> that he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness, and here's the, the direction of it, is towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what all that means. I don't know what that experience is going to be like. If you do, please text me what it is later so I will know. You can feel free to text me now. I mean, I want, I mean, I want to know, and I wish I could explain it to you in detail, what that is in a, an experiential sense. Uh, but to an extent, we just don't know. You know, to, to appreciate the future, you have to kind of understand the past a little bit from what God has revealed. And that's why he leads with the stuff that he does here uh, in these first three verse, verse, verses uh, when he talks about our position. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And I, those, again, these, I'm getting tempted to get into all the, the minutia of these words, so maybe you'll just forgive me if I do just a little bit. I find it very interesting that he says we were dead up in verse number 1, but then in verse number two, he says that we walked, all right? So unless you're into this whole, uh, what is that zombie TV show? 
Walking Dead. That is that thing even if it's still a thing? Is it even still on? It's got to be in like season 806 by now. I don't know. Uh, season three, I was like, you guys can have it. Peace. I'm out. All right, I'm done. All right, this is getting it's like a zombie soap opera or something. I just I couldn't handle it emotionally. But uh, my point here being is this: is God looked down and he saw people that were in a position of living death. They were active. Now, this is what, again, my mind's going 100 miles an hour, and I wanted to, I'm trying to decide in a split second how far I want to go down this road in order to make the point. <clears throat> the point that I, I overall want to get to is this in these verses, is that the position of death is a position of activity. It's a, p- a position of feeling. You'll even see that word in the verses that we read. There, Paul talks about the book of Colossians that when we were out without Christ, we were without feeling. Uh, we, were, we had ideas about God. Have you ever noticed why the world or those outside of Christ, they still to be, they're, they're still very spiritually oriented just in all the wrong directions? That's because just because a person is dead doesn't mean that they don't have this desire for a spiritual connection. It's just that anytime they try to make it on their own, they're going to miss it. That's why the book of Romans says, there is none that seeketh after God. None. Nobody seeks after God. Christ comes to them. The gospel is revealed to them. Jesus steps in their life. They don't go climb a mountain somewhere and, you know, see a pretty sunset and realize, oh, wait, Jesus died before the foundation of the world for my sin and then I'm dead in those sins. And without faith in him, that's the only way that I'm going to be born again and have perfect peace with God. That's not going to happen. They're going to come to these conclusions that go back to themselves and their activities. And what they need to do to make themselves enlightened or to make themselves free of the burden of sin. And we were those people. And God came to us because he knew what future he was going to provide for us. A future of great love, a future of saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. In verse 8, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And in verse number 7, an eternity of where he shows his kindness towards us. A father that is never ending in him raising up kids to where they'll understand exactly what their value is. And when Jesus sat down at the table with those 12, he saw this. He knew it was coming. And so rather than look at the cross and say, no, not worth it, he realized that it was very worth it. You know, a byproduct of this is the fact that it makes us thankful. We can look at this scenario and we can be thankful for it as well. If you're here with us this morning and you don't know Christ, that's something we want to help you with. We, we don't want you to say some little prayer. We don't want you to have some kind of outlandish feeling. We want you to understand that what Jesus Christ for done, has done for you is enough. And that whatever it is you're trying to do for yourself to make it enough is not and it is a Band-Aid on sin. And the gospel is here to pull that Band-Aid back and say, despite the sins there, I have the answer. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's only and final way to forgiveness and righteousness. There is no other. And we can be thankful for that, right? Typically at this time, Daniel and Lauren come up and pray. They're out of town right now. Um, But if you need somebody to pray with you or you need to talk about something as far as what it means to be born again, maybe you got something going on in your life, I'll be out up front here. If you want to hang out and talk, that would be great.
let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, right? And uh, we'll be dismissed, right? Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for your love. Thank you for the gospel. Uh, thank you for how you meet our needs, even when we are in a position, because we're in a position where we cannot. We desperately try. We desperately fail. Uh, but I'm glad that Jesus was successful. And I'm glad that he was thankful for the, what he was going to go through because of what it provided for us. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.